Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. If you will stand with me, let's uh, look in the word of the Lord at uh, Zechariah chapter 4. Uh, we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is a vision, and visions are oftentimes odd. Uh, and so we're going to try to work through uh, this vision in a way that brings some clarity uh, to us, of both of what it means, what it meant to the original hearers and writers of uh, this letter, and then also uh, what it means to us as well. So Zechariah chapter 4 starting at uh, verse 1. This is uh, a message to Hezekiah the prophet. He says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on top of it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive, tree, olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the public reading of Scripture. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to seek you and to pray to you, to read your word openly and freely, Lord, knowing that many people in many places of the world do not enjoy this type of freedom. Lord, even this morning, I'm reminded of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, many of whom I have uh, seen pictures of or saw a video clip of who are worshiping in their churches, who are worshiping and praying in public for the safety of their loved ones and the freedom of their own country. God, we stand today. We're not under threat of war. We're not under threat of persecution. We don't have to worry that someone might hear that we're speaking the name of Jesus and they may uh, come in and take us off to prison or worse. Lord, we enjoy a great opportunity this morning. And Lord, today is the only day that we're assured that we will have this opportunity. So God, I pray that you will help us to not take it for granted. 
but to be grateful people who have an opportunity to sing to the top of our lungs, to lift up hands and praise to you because you are worthy. We can do it freely. And God, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would take this word which has been uh, written for our good and for our benefit. And you will help me to preach out of this text, Lord. And the words that go forth would help us to understand and apply it to our life. That we would not just hear the word and walk away, but that we would be hearers and doers of the word, Lord. So God, thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters this morning to worship you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So again, in this uh, series this morning, just to kind of catch some of you up uh, to speed on uh, where we are, we believe at Riverstone that uh, there are a few uh, aspects of being part of the body of Christ that help us to grow in relationship with the Lord Jesus. And we have kind of established what we see as maybe a process that we can think about in terms of discipleship. You or I could use many terms to describe this, but one of the first is exactly what we're doing today, and that is worshiping the Lord uh, together in community. We talked about that several weeks ago, what it means to worship the Lord in uh, community. And secondly, we think that the Lord wants you to live joyfully before Him. Now, living joyfully doesn't mean that you're happy all the time, but what it does mean is that you're in community with other people who can encourage you, who can bless you, uh, who you can fellowship with, and you're living free from the bondage of sin, uh, that you are living a life in holiness towards the Lord. Last week, we talked about finding uh, your purpose. We looked in Zechariah chapter 3, and this Sunday is a continuation of that, uh, finding our purpose in the Lord. And so I want to give a little context to uh, this particular passage. Uh, I gave it a little, in a little more detail last week, uh, but want to uh, share uh, briefly some context here for this passage. Uh, The Jews at this time were rebellious against God's desires for their holiness. And so you see really all the way back in the beginning of the Old Testament that there was a cycle of ups and downs of kind of rebellion and turning to the pagan influences around them and then turning back to God and focusing on uh, the Lord. There was a cycle throughout uh, their history, throughout a period of judges and then kings. And at the uh, near the end of the period of uh, the kings, the Lord uh, sold them essentially into the hand of the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in and conquered them. And this was foretold by the prophets that this was going uh, to happen. And Jeremiah, the prophet, even told them, he said, uh, don't pray that this doesn't happen because God's not even going to hear your prayer that it doesn't happen. You've been a wicked and rebellious people, and uh, you're going to be sold into this bondage for 70 years of captivity under the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came into Jerusalem, uh, destroyed the city, destroyed the 
the temple, which is the temple that Solomon built. So if you read earlier in the Old Testament, you'll see what a grand and glorious uh, temple this was and how much it meant to the Jews. This was very important in Jewish worship because it represented the very presence of God in their midst. And so uh, they saw the destruction of the temple uh, kind of like a real knife to the heart. This was devastating, not just to them uh, personally, but to the national uh, culture that happened. If you remember back on uh, 9-11 and when the attacks on our country happened, the targets that were uh, attacked were symbolic targets, things that were to get at the heart of the American people of who we were, our defense, our uh, financial system. Uh, And so this is sort of what was happening here, except this cuts to the heart of exactly who the Jews felt like they were as a people. They were centered around this idea, even if they did it imperfectly, of worshiping God. And when the temple was uh, destroyed, this was uh, just a a very difficult blow to the Jewish people. And so after 70 years of uh, captivity in the Babylonian empire, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And what the Persians wanted to do was allow the people who they conquered to return to their homeland and to worship their own Gods. And so after 70 years, the Jews were allowed to go back by edict, edict of the Persian king. They could return home. They could begin rebuilding Jerusalem, including uh, the temple. And so the foundation of the temple had been laid around 536 BC. And you can read uh, more about that in the book of uh, Ezra. And so we built the foundation uh, last week, and it happened uh, with the families together building uh, the foundation of the temple. But there were others who came around, and to those who were building, they started uh, mocking them. They started trying to get them to turn away from the work. They did not want them to complete uh, building the temple. And so they tried to pull away the people from the work of the Lord to get their sights set on something else. And they went to the king of Persia and they started saying, these people are rebellious and they're wicked. Jerusalem has always been rebellious. Just read the history books. So the king goes back and he begins reading the history books. And what he sees is exactly what he was told. These are rebellious people. Jerusalem has always been rebellious. And so he doesn't want to have to deal with that. So he says, stop the building. And so what's left now is just a foundation. Foundation. And when you think about that, you think about, imagine what's going through the people's mind. Hope that had been lost by the temple's destruction 70 years earlier, then hope restored. God's helping us. We're going to build this thing. We're going to build it back, and God's going to help us build it. Only then for your hopes to be dashed again. The political system is arrayed against us and not going to allow us to rebuild. And so while they're still living in the land, imagine the person who walks by the foundation day after day. And what did they think? God has forsaken us. 
God called us to start this work, and now God's not doing anything for us to help complete it. In fact, this is just something of scorn for our enemies to use against us. They will say, did your God really come through? Look at what your God has done. You've made a fool of yourself trying to rebuild this thing. For about 14 years, the foundation laid dormant. We don't like going through trials for 10 minutes, let alone 14 years. Imagine the thought that was going through the people who passed by, the people who were being ridiculed. The uncompleted building was a constant reminder of failure. It becomes the point of pride for the enemies of Israel and a point of sorrow for the Israelites themselves. Again, the concern was not just that there was an uncompleted building, but there was a theological concern as well. We're doing God's work, but it doesn't seem that God is helping at all. In fact, it seems that the work that we're trying to do for the Lord seems to be immeasurably more difficult than the, than the, the opportunities that the enemies of the Lord have. Seems that the things we want to do for God, God doesn't help us at all while our enemies prosper and get what they want. And so God raises up a prophet by the name of Zechariah. Again, last week we looked at Zechariah chapter 3. The foundation of the temple again had been laid and there were three people at this point that were kind of the main people in this story. Zerubbabel, who was of the kingly line from David. He wasn't called a king necessarily at this point. He was called a governor because he was under the Persian king, but he was the rightful heir to the political leadership of the Israelites. We had Joshua, who we look at in the beginning of chapter 3, who was the high priest, but Zechariah sees him kind of arrayed in dirty garments And then we have, I said Zechariah first, didn't I? I meant Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor. The high priest was Joshua. And then Zechariah was the prophet who was prophesying during this time. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And God had decreed that those three positions had to be in order. So Joshua in chapter 3. The role of the priest had to be fulfilled, but Joshua was not prepared to fulfill it, and Satan was there to accuse him. We talked about last week how God did not even acknowledge or listen to the accusations of the enemy. God did not acknowledge or listen to the accusations of the enemy. When God is doing something in your life and it seems like God is not listening and it seems like only the foundation has been laid and it seems like it's been longer than 10 minutes since God has acted and the enemies of the Lord are coming against you to accuse you, be reminded that God doesn't listen to the words of the accusers. In fact, the Lord defends those who are his chosen. God rejects the accuser twice. 
God has rescued Joshua from the fire of the Babylonian captivity for a specific purpose. Just as God has brought you out under the power of sin and rescued you from the domain of darkness for a specific purpose and a specific plan. It was the Lord who had initiated the cleansing of Joshua. It was the Lord who took away his filthy clothes and put on him the festal robes, the scripture says. But be reminded, Joshua could not cleanse himself. It wasn't something he could do on his own. It was something only the Lord could do. And the Lord commissions him to do a work in his kingdom, which brings us to Zechariah 4 a continuation of the message to bring hope to the cast down or the dejected Israelites that God would rebuild the temple, would continue the work, and his glory would be manifested among them. So we read this vision, and we see in this vision some pretty interesting uh, words, some pretty interesting thoughts that uh, come to us. And Zechariah 4, it simply represents a vision and then an interpretation of that vision. And so I I wondered the question as I was studying for the message, why does God use visions? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if when God spoke to us, God just came down and said to us, hey, I want you to do this. Uh, I want you to go here. I want you to uh, go in this way. And this is how it's going to all work out. And I want you to be reminded that I've started this plan in your life. Uh, It doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, but I want you to know it is going to happen. And the same person that kind of laid the foundation is going to be the same same person that's going to finish it. You guys are going to be okay in the end. Wouldn't that be a whole lot easier than showing olive trees with oil and lamps and fire? And even, uh, even Zachariah's like, hey, what does this mean? Why does God do that? I don't have all the answers to that. I, I don't. But I do think for you and I, there are at times that God gives these dreams and visions because they are memorable and not easily forgotten. Amos 3 and 7 says that surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And God has chosen in his sovereignty to often reveal his counsel in dreams and visions. In fact, Joel 2.28 says that in the latter days, dreams, vision, and prophecy will be even more regular, a regular occurrence. It talks about old men and young men and daughters receiving dreams and visions and understanding. So we ought to expect that. Oftentimes in church, we kind of structure it and try to make it uh, pretty and structured so we understand every single piece that's happening next to it. Nobody's caught off guard. But as we see over and over and over again in Scripture, God often likes to catch us off guard. He often likes to come in and stir things a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 20 tells us not to despise prophecy. The Old and New Testaments both speak to the relevance of prophecies and dreams and vision. 
And so God shows Zechariah in the Old Testament a very memorable vision, and it is of a golden lampstand. If you guys can, thank you. So <clears throat> this is an artist, artist's rendering. Uh, this may not have been exactly what uh, Zechariah saw in the vision. This is how someone kind of read uh, the scriptures and drew it out. I will tell you, even among theologians who go back and study the original languages and try to get out exactly uh, what the Hebrew may be telling us in this particular passage, they have some questions about exactly, you know, how many uh, tubes are coming from uh, the olive trees and exactly what this would look like. So this is kind of a picture to give us a rendering of sort of what the vision that Zechariah may have seen. So he sees this golden lampstand. Many of us are familiar uh, with the word menorah. Menorah is simply the Hebrew word for lampstand. And so could have been something similar along the lines. There is to this picture, there is a bowl that catches pure olive oil from two golden pipes from two olive trees on either side of the lamp. The bowl then feeds the oil to seven lamps or wicks, which are fueled by the olive oil. Zechariah would immediately know what this lampstand was, but he doesn't know what it means. And he, he does this by asking, what are these, my Lord? So Zechariah is not ignorant to the fact that there is a meeting. This isn't just some random dream that he had after a bad dinner meal. This is something that has an interpretation, has something that needs to be discerned. And so one of the things that we can practice as believers is when you have a dream that kind of stands out to you, simply ask God what it means. If it means something, he'll tell you. If it means something, he'll reveal it to you. He'll give you counsel from his word, counsel from the power of the Holy Spirit. So why is this lampstand here in Zechariah's vision? The lampstand was an important practical and spiritual element in the tabernacle. Now, you'll recall that the instructions for building a tabernacle, which were the house of worship, the first house of worship for the Jews were given to Moses. And the lampstand was placed inside the tabernacle where it would have been dark. So it served a practical purpose. You would light it to see what you were doing inside the tabernacle, later on uh, the temple. But the lampstand also testified to the light of Christ in the darkness of the world. We see it repeated to us in the Old Testament. We also see the lampstand in the book of Revelation. Exodus 25, 31 through 40 gives the very detailed instructions of how this lampstand was to be constructed. And God brings us to this image over and over again throughout Scripture. At this particular time, remember, there's just a foundation. There's no temple. And so when God shows Zechariah this vision, Zechariah's mind is immediately going to connect the dots that there has to be a place to put this lampstand inside. There has to be a place where this lampstand will rest. Imagine if you have land 
and you have a foundation for your house that has been dormant for 14 years, and then God all of a sudden gives you a vision and tells you to start buying furniture for your new house. What would you think? Well, if God gave you that vision, you would probably begin to think, well, God is going to construct for me a house to put it in. I'm certainly not going to go set it out on the foundation where the weather and the elements are going to impact it. If God's going to show me the furniture and God's going to give me the opportunity for the furniture, then God is certainly going to complete what has already been started. So Zechariah, in seeing this vision, it becomes an affirmation that God was going to build his temple on the foundation that had already been laid. And Zechariah records for us in chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, the Lord says to him, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. What he's saying here, the priest had a responsibility. The light in the, the tabernacle and the temple of the lampstand was required to never go out. Never go out. It could never go out. And so the priest constantly had to be supplying it with oil. There had to be a man at work within the tabernacle or later temple in order to get oil and supply specified oil so that the fire would continually burn over and over. And so when Zechariah sees this vision and God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, what we see is that there is something happening that doesn't require human intervention. There is something happening in this vision that doesn't require a human to begin to get the oil out of the olive trees in order to feed it to the lampstand. The insurmountable problem, the mountain that the ruler was facing, Zerubbabel was facing, who had laid the foundation, God spoke to the prophet Zechariah and said, this incomplete foundation, the hand of Zerubbabel that started it, I want you to know that his hand will finish it and place the capstone to shouts of grace to it. This wasn't going to happen some long time in the future that had to happen within a lifespan. The person who started it will be the person who finished it. So you may say, what does all this mean? I still don't quite understand. I think it has a meaning for you and me that's very specific today. First of all, why didn't God speak directly to Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the governor, was the ruler. Zerubbabel was the one who could motivate the people to get on the job and to get the work done. Why didn't God speak directly to Zerubbabel? Why did God go through someone else to speak to the person who he was going to, one, encourage by the vision, but to say, hey, this needs to be done? Why? Because God has a specific plan, a specific role for people. And some people serve certain roles in the kingdom while other people serve other different types of roles in the kingdom. And one of the things that I've often heard people say is that if God wanted me to do this, I think he'd tell me first. Now imagine if Zerubbabel had said that. If God wanted me to rebuild the temple, I'm sure he would tell me first. 
He wouldn't have to go through Zechariah in order to talk to me, in order to help me understand that I started the foundation and I'm going to get to finish it. But it wasn't Zerubbabel's role. It wasn't Zerubbabel's purpose. It was Zechariah's purpose to hear from the Lord. And it was Zechariah's purpose to say to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Zechariah 4.9, Then he, the, the, the angel said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is what I want you to go say to Zerubbabel. Tell Zerubbabel, Zechariah, your role is to go and tell, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God could have revealed all of this to Zerubbabel himself. He could have revealed all of this to the leader himself and said, Zerubbabel, this is what it means. Zerubbabel, this is what's going to happen. But he didn't. He spoke to the prophet. We have to be careful if that's our mindset. If God wanted me to do something, I think he'd tell me first. Don't cut yourself out from others speaking into your life. There are some times that God may speak to someone else about what you need to be doing. Now, I think there's a proper response to that, and that is to pray about it and check it against the word of the Lord. Certainly, we should all have and do due diligence. But we ought not discount the work of God in other people for his glory. When we look at this passage, one of the things that we see is that God works and has chosen to work through failure and weakness. Zerubbabel could not complete the temple on his own. The politics of the situation were against him. Many of the people were against him. As I said earlier, he was not even considered a king, so he didn't have that authority. In fact, he was a governor under a pagan king. There was nothing in Zerubbabel except a dream that had been spoken by someone else and a foundation that hadn't been built upon. And this seems to happen so often in Scripture. When we look back at the beginning of the kings and David, uh, the king uh, who would become the king of Israel, when it was first looked at, they didn't even think that he was someone worth looking at. He was young, he was overlooked, and yet God chose him to become king. We look at the very life of our Lord, which ended in crucifixion. It looks like an abject failure, and yet three days later, there was this triumph over the grave. We see the, the great theologian of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who was a, a Pharisee and well-respected, yet after becoming a Christian, endured one hardship after another. Yet now there's probably not a Sunday that goes by that Scripture penned by the Apostle Paul is not written in churches everywhere. Hebrews chapter 11 de details and introduces to us what could seem like failure after failure after failure that is then triumphed through the power of God working through that failure. Our lives often follow that pattern of Scripture. See what I hope you see and what is going on in Zechariah 3 and 4 
is that we ought not fret or be dismayed by circumstances and what seems like God's incomplete plan in your life. The Lord tells Zechariah, do not despise the day of small things. There is something beautiful about God accomplishing in us what we could not do in ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. This could be an insulting passage. That there were not many, essentially many of you, many of us, wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What I believe the Lord would speak to us this morning, if you feel like you are the one who's kind of at the bottom of the barrel or you feel like God has started something that doesn't seem like it's going to get off the ground, if you sense in your life that there is this failure and you can't get over it. That is the fertile ground that God wants to work with. That is the opportunity that God wants to use for his glory in your life. If you can do it, do it. Make it happen. Pat yourself on the back. But God has chosen those things that are weak to shame the wise. Because in choosing the things that are weak, he gets all the glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, we ought to get real uncomfortable for ourselves. In fact, it should be one of those red flags, ringing bells, somebody saying when somebody's speaking to us, when we think in our life, whoa, I have done a lot. I've really accomplished a lot here. I'm a good person. I'm smart. Got a good future. I got some real opportunities ahead of me. When we begin to think that way, if we're in Christ, there ought to be some kind of warning bell that goes off in our life to tell us that the ground is becoming hard for God's Spirit to be able to work. I can tell you this, that when you feel like you can't do it, when you feel like you don't have the intellectual framework to accomplish what God wants to do, it can be a little disheartening. When you think you don't have a scope of everything that needs to come together in order to do what God's put in your heart, you can wrestle and struggle with that. I've been there, I know, and I understand 
But I can tell you when you look back over what God does, when you're simply willing to take one step and put it, put one foot in front of the other, when you look back and see the power and the glory of God in the past and in his work in you, it will cause within you this eruption of praise that nothing else could cause that to happen. Seeing what God has done by his glory, seeing how God has worked, how God has rooted out the flesh and rooted out the sin through every step and every circumstance and looking back and saying, God, I am so thankful you have done what I could not do myself. Then at times when we realize our weakness and our frailty, that we can look up to a wonderful Savior who says to us, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Your purpose is found in Christ, sustaining you despite yours and my inadequacy. It is not by mind, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God works through our failures and our weaknesses. Secondly, we see in this passage that people in community together are able to fulfill God's purpose by the power of his spirit. Zechariah saw the brokenness of God's people after their captivity. He knew, Joshua knew that he wasn't holy in the way that priests should be holy. Zerubbabel knew that he could not fulfill God's plan apart from a miracle. Yet God used these three together and others along with them to fulfill his plan. The prophet had to hear God's plan and encourage God's people. The priest had to intercede for God's plan to be accomplished. And the governor king needed to motivate and organize God's people in in order to fulfill God's purpose. There was a plan. There was a purpose for each and every person that is part of this story. And your purpose fits in the puzzle with other people's purposes to accomplish the overall plan of God. I'm going to ask Brother Toby to uh, help me here. I need about three people. Do we have some five or six-year-olds here in the sanctuary? Claire, we have some others. You're five or six years old. Just come run up. About three of you. Come on, some good puzzle people. Come on. There we go. Come on, Mr. Birdie. Right over here, buddy. Come on, right over here. We got one more, one more. Somebody six, seven. Come on. We're going to put together a puzzle today, okay? Guys, can you help me? Can you help me? What's this of? A fire truck. Have you ever been in a fire truck? No. Have you? No. Okay. All right. One thing. Look at a puzzle. A puzzle's a good illustration. You have a guide. You have a guide to putting together the puzzle, don't we? Something that tells us what it's supposed to look like. I want to make the correlation here. We have a guide, something that tells us where we're going and where we are heading. I'm going to ask you guys, this is a uh, 24-piece puzzle, okay? So I want you to help, and Mr. Bouch is going to help put together this puzzle. So what we're going to do is we're going to set your guide right there, all right? And I want you to get the move in there. Let's, Let's hurry and get it done. Make it happen. 
Come on, you guys can make it happen. <laughs> you look at these puzzle pieces and think about you and me. If we were to design this, we might design puzzle pieces. If we were to think about it, we might design oh, puzzle pieces like a block. Nice and straight. Why? Because they fit together so well. Whose idea was this? Who, who thought of this? And so what we need to think about with a puzzle is that there's all shapes and sizes. But there's a place for every piece. There is a place for every piece. And what's interesting, if you look at that, think about if we were to put a puzzle together and all the pieces were square. We were to put it all together, but all the pieces were square. They wouldn't stay together very well, would it? It wouldn't stay together very well at all. In fact, it's the differences in the pieces of the puzzle that help them lock together and hold together very tightly. So, I, you know, uh, as a pastor, there are times when you get together with other pastors and those pastors talk about the people in their congregations. I say, and I mean this seriously, wonderful things about being in fellowship with you all. There are some pastors who don't have that uh, opportunity. And what I think the problem is, is that we can't, we got to get to the place where we realize that the things that make us different are actually the things that God uses to hook us together, to help us align together, to love one another and to work with one another. And to sometimes when the attitude gets a little off to kind of sand that edge a little better. And so they're putting together the puzzle and you think about the puzzle there is a picture that we're going towards piece by piece. They're putting it together piece by piece. There is every point of the puzzle, whether it's the top piece or the bottom piece, every piece of the puzzle has a purpose. You guys are getting it. Toby's having a rough time here. <laughs> I asked Brandy, she's in the nursery. <laughs> now, I know you all may not be able to see the completed pro uh, uh, project. They're almost there. They're almost there. And what do you have? What's missing? Now, have any of you ever put together one of those thousand piece puzzles? And there's that one piece, that one piece. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Thank you guys. One piece. And if that one piece is missing, that one piece is missing. Is the puzzle any good? What's the point? You can't see the beautiful picture. When there's that one piece that's missing, the one piece 
as not in its place. But then you also have the attitude of the one piece. This thing will fall apart without me. What you all need is me. Just me. That's all you need. Nope. This puzzle piece fits the same way every other piece of the puzzle fits together. Not one piece is more important than the other. Not one piece shines out better. And the only way this looks like a beautiful, completed piece is when every puzzle piece is fulfilling its role, knows its purpose. Amen. This is what God has for you and for me. Just like the priest and the king and the prophet and the ones who were putting the block on the ground, everyone had a part to play. Everyone had a purpose. Everyone had a role. So you and I also have a role to work together, each piece of the puzzle being important, but linked to someone else. What bothers me and what we can often see at times is one person saying they're just missing me if you would just do what I say it would all kind of come together but it's only when we're in community together locking together fulfilling the mandate that the Lord has called us you have a purpose you have a purpose today and that purpose in the Lord's kingdom is a responsibility to the church his body. And yes, we can kind of put that in academic terms way out there and say, yes, I'm part of the body of Christ universal, but God has put you in relationship with people you can touch, feel, and love. That's who we must link with together in community. Thirdly, and finally, the notion and idea out of this passage and what we see, I think, over and over throughout the scriptures is that God is the central focus of God's plan. Sometimes we want to make ourselves a central focus of God's plan. We are not the central focus of God's plan and God's work and God's power in the earth. What God is doing, the culmination of the things, yes, as was read this morning, we will be part of that heavenly host, worshiping and exalting him. And I'm looking forward to that. And I want to be part of that number. But the purpose and the plan is that Jesus would receive glory throughout eternity. It is God is, God is the one who is directing the gifting and the calling and the purpose of Zechariah and Zerubbabel. And Joshua, it is God who is unfolding his plan, not their plan. It is not by their might nor their power, but by his spirit that it will be accomplished. And God's plan and God's purpose in linking us together is that we would point people to the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, a light that shines in the darkness. The house that my family and I currently live in, we have uh, lived there for, I guess, about six or seven years now. And this morning, about 3 a.m., I was uh, awake, and I don't know why I was awake at 3 a.m., but I was laying there in the bed, and I happened to pick my head up and look. And normally, 
my, my wife closes the, the blinds that night. The tonight or last night they were open or this morning they were open. And I just picked my head up and looked and looked out the window and I'm seeing a blinking red light. Out in the, we live out in the woods. So uh, with, with not many neighbors around. And so when I'm thinking like a blinking red light, like my first thing goes like those guns that have the like laser light on them. <laughs> And I get up and I look, maybe that wasn't a wise thing to go to the window and look at it. <laughs> uh, but I went to the window and I'm looking, I'm thinking I've never seen that before. It's a light blinking. And I'm like, Nicole, come here. Uh, and I wake her up. And so we're looking out the window and neither one of us have ever seen that light before. I don't know if it's a tower on the mountain. I didn't think there was a mountain in that direction or something that was blinking in that way. But what was interesting was it was a tiny, small light blinking. And it shined through the darkness at 3 a.m. and caught my eye laying in bed. Think about the lampstand shining in the darkness. It doesn't take much to shine in the darkness. And God wants the glory of Jesus to shine in the darkness. He is jealous for his glory. He is the central focus of everything that we are doing. Your purpose and my purpose is solely for the glory of God. Every detail of this vision was to point to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm finishing up here. Haggai, another prophet, chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. I want to read that to you. It says, who is left among you who saw this house, meaning this temple, in its former glory, the 70 years before it was destroyed, the 70 years ago? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. In verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So as I shared last week, the greater glory of this temple, it was smaller than the original temple, not as magnificent as the original temple. And yet this prophetic word was spoken over it, that it, the glory of it would be greater than the previous temple. 500 years later, Mary and Joseph would walk up the steps to a temple that was being renovated by Herod, still Zerubbabel's temple, but being renovated by Herod. Mary and Joseph would walk up the steps of that very temple holding the light of the world. The greater glory. And as they are walking up in the steps, they're met by a man, and that man's name is Simeon. And he gives a prophecy to them, and he says to them that this will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, an everlasting light that will keep burning. 
Jesus is the lampstand that will never go out. Jesus is the lamp that has a perpetual supply of oil to give light in the darkness. One of the reasons as a church that we are praying in Crozet or praying at East High or worshiping in these locations is because God has a plan for Jesus to be glorified in Charlottesville. You and I are pieces of the Riverstone puzzle that God is using to reach our city. And Riverstone is a piece of a greater puzzle even of the faithful churches within the area that God is using to reach people for his glory. You and our church are necessary pieces that God is using to accomplish his plan that the light of the world would shine bright in dark places. God wants us to work together. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to find our purpose. If you don't know your purpose, we'll help you find your purpose. We'll help you figure it out. We'll help you figure it out because if you're not fulfilling your purpose, the puzzle's not complete. Stand with me and let's pray together uh, today. Brothers, if I could have you maybe just scoot that table off to the side for me, please. As we pray, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to uh, pray with me, either uh, at your seat or, or here at the altar. Um, the altar area, we believe, is just a place where we acknowledge that we want to get in touch with the Lord. We want God to know that we're serious. We want to step out as an act of faith. And uh, we just have prayer here. This is where we have prayer so often together and ask the Lord to meet us. It's not that he can't meet you at your seat. He certainly can. But I know this morning in a congregation such as this, there's probably some of you that have come and maybe you feel like I am a failure. You feel like I don't have a place. You're in the midst of a trial and you're wondering how you will ever get out. You are like Zerubbabel and the foundation has been laid, yet nothing is happening. It's simply stagnant. You need God to intervene. You need God to give you an understanding and a vision somehow of where it's going and what's going to happen. You need hope again. You're here this morning and you don't have hope. I would ask you to come that someone can stand and pray with you that you feel the love of someone else who's not going to condemn you, who's not going to cast you off, but the love of someone else in community who's going to say, I want to stand with you and I want to pray with you. Maybe you don't find yourself in that place this morning. And so what I'd like to ask you, if that's not you, I'd like to ask you to find a place of prayer as well. But to pray that as a church, as a body, together collectively, that we would be faithful to fulfill our role, our purpose. That we would be faithful That in our city, in our community, where there are broken people, people who are going through the trials of life, people who, as Scripture says at times, don't know their right hand from their left, they're broken, they're hurting, they don't know which way to turn, that we would be a place that would welcome them with open arms and love them and show them the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as they sing and they 
lead us in worship. I'm going to ask you to just find a place of prayer. Maybe here at the altar, maybe where you are, but let's take the next few moments. Let's pray and intercede. If you need particular prayer, please come uh, to the front and stand here and we will pray with you. But otherwise, let's find a place of prayer this morning and seek the Lord together as they lead us in a time of worship.